Well, good morning, Southwinds family. I sure hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We're able to celebrate all the good things the Lord has been doing in your life. This morning, we're going to be finishing up our series, Hope for Exiles, in the book of 1 Peter. So we're going to be looking at chapter 5. So if you'd like to go there in your Bible, that would be wonderful. Well, I love Survivor shows on TV. You know, Man vs. Wild, Survivor Man, all the Alaska shows. I feel like it's my duty as a dad to watch Bear Grylls with my son and talk about what it would be like to survive in the wilderness. And really, it was just I like to watch it. But I grew up in Boy Scouts, and I uh, loved it. But we didn't even have to eat bugs or my favorite. We didn't have to do what Bear did where he squeezed fresh elephant dung for water. Uh, but we're all intrigued, aren't we, by survival stories. You know, we had that soccer team that was caught in the cave and all kinds of stories between all the way back to baby Jessica. And I bet a lot of people feel like in 2020 that we're stuck in our own cave or well just trying to survive. And it seems like, and First Peter's talking about this, this, that in times of survival, we feel like we just need to survive where God wants us to thrive. He wants us to live out our faith in a way that shouts out the excellency of Christ. And so thinking about this, can we do this in 2020? Can we let 2020 and all the pressures squeeze us and break us down and strip away all the trappings of our life to reveal Christ's excellency in us? Well, let's go ahead and read our text. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, starting in verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, in our secular society, it seems today, they've sold us this idea that we should never have to suffer, that thriving should be life's natural state, not surviving. And in our Western culture, we've done everything to insulate ourselves from suffering and pain and death. And we feel like we need to protect ourselves from any psychological or physical harm. And that we're, therefore, we have you know, trigger warnings and safe spaces and cancel culture and protections of hate speech and participation ribbons and all those things, all to shield us from anything bad happening to us. Now, growing up with the fairy tales that we were told as kids, you know, it was that the, the wolf ate grandma. Do you remember that? Well, today's version, grandma faints, hides in a cupboard, and she's revived at the end. It used to be that we could warn young people that the world is a dangerous and tragic place, that life is hard, that death is inevitable. But this secular progressive view of the world, there's no room for that. We can't have that kind of tragedy and difficulty because it would be a disruption of society's progression toward utopia. But every other religious system in the world has a category to deal with pain and suffering. But the secular worldview, which is, which is itself a religion, of course, has no way to deal with it. There's, there's no ultimate purpose in life. We're just molecules in motion. There's no spirit or soul that we have that would grow through suffering. We're just moist robots. There's no meaning beyond getting pleasure in the here and now. We're just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And they sold us this lie that the reason we live is to be happy. And any suffering is an inconvenience and an interruption of my purpose. You see, if, if happiness is your highest value, not the Lord, not the Bible, not church, then what makes you happy in any particular moment becomes your idol and you worship it. As we said last, last week, when you have an idol, you fear or dread its loss. And so the loss of our happiness means the death of our God. And that's just downright scary. And so is it any wonder why our culture is just racked with anxiety? 
We have this grave fear of losing our happiness, God, a, a fear that suffering will somehow undo us. And, and it's given us this lack of fortitude to just press on, no immunity to deal with difficulty or tolerance for pain. The, the Bible's telling us that that is not the way of Christ, that God is bringing tests and trials and suffering into our lives that are shaping our souls. And he wants to build character qualities in us that we could never build without struggle. Think about it. How could you ever really learn humility without a trial? How could you learn to forgive somebody if you've never been wronged and suffered that way? How could you learn patience if you've never had to wait on God? How could you learn compassion if you've never been broken? And so pain builds these character qualities in us. And so today, as we wrap up 1 Peter, it's really kind of the theme of the whole book, but our big idea for today is this. If we are humbled through faithful suffering, he will exalt us. So I want to talk about what, how do we build a spiritual fortitude in the midst of suffering in our lives. And it's straight from this text here. The first point is this, is be humbled and cast your anxieties on him. See, so many things today cause anxiety, and it's, of course, on the rise with all these COVID lockdowns. The CDC back in August said 41% of Americans are suffering from dep depression and anxiety. The st statistics are greatly uh, increased, of course, during COVID-19. They say older adults saw a rise in reported anxiety from 39% in May to 53% in July. And the study didn't give a number, but it said younger adults are significantly more likely to be depressed and have anxiety than older adults. In fact, one in four young adults, 18 to 24, have seriously commit, uh, considered suicide linked to these lockdowns. Of course, we've seen the increase in drug and alcohol use and from the forced isolation and withdrawal. And there's just no telling what this is going to mean to this generation of kids. My favorite author has said this. He said, anxiety is the canary in the coal mine. He says that anxiety is the first symptom we have of being too attached to this world and not trusting God. You see, I, I have this list on my phone in my notes. It says, all, it says things that happen to me when I don't pray. <laughs> and it's just a reminder of what happens when I'm not praying enough. And on that list, you can just see it. It's just racked with this, a list of all my anxieties. And I want you to know, I'm really good at worrying. It's very effective for me because 99% of what I worry about doesn't ever happen. So I'm pretty good at it. But uh, because our society and all of us, we avoid suffering at all costs sometimes. So that when it comes, it's inevitably going to produce anxiety in us. You see, when we forget that heaven and is our home and we treat earth as our home, then we're going to be anxious and so the question for us as the church, as believers in Christ, is, is our anxiety because we're listening to the prophets of Babylon and not the promises of God? Because if you're anxious about life on earth, then you'll want to promote yourself. You want, you want to get yours and you want to make life everything it could be. And so when you promote yourself and you strive, it makes you anxious because it's never going to be enough. But if this is our home, then everything begins and ends here. And, and this is all we have. And so we need to make the most of it. And so if I'm not promoted here, I never, I never will be, and I'm going to miss out. I mean, social, this is the lifeblood of social media, isn't it? It just makes the problem so much worse because it lives on self-promotion. We post our best self, and we just wait to be approved and liked, and we judge our worth by the amount of likes we get. By, it's just this life of approval by clicks. I mean, do you see the pride there? <laughs> so pride and anxiety are, sis, are twin sisters. They just go together. And that's why I think in, in verse 5, the command is to humble yourselves. And that translation, humble yourselves, kind of gives you the idea, really, that you could do it yourself. 
But I want you to know in the original language that that's, the verb tense uh, is rather, pa- it's passive. It rather should read, be humbled. Not just humble yourselves, but be humbled. We are passive in the process by the hands of God acting on us. And so God is the one who brings suffering to his people. And through it, we're to be humbled. It's God's work in you. You see, it's a prerequisite for what comes next, which is him exalting you in the proper time. And it won't happen a minute too soon. God will not shortcut the process. That is the way of the gospel. Humiliation before exaltation. Jesus modeled it. First the cross, then the crown. First the suffering, then the glory. You see, for us, now is not the time for us to be exalted. That's for when it's all over, when we're home. And no amount of likes and followers and comments can compare with Christ exalting us at the proper time. But you see, if this is not our home and it doesn't, life doesn't end here, then we see that now is not the time uh, for us to be exalted, but to be humbled. I have exaltation waiting for me, so I don't need to strive to get it here. I don't need to promote myself because I have a promise of it coming in proper time when God sees fit. And so, as God rids us of pride, along with it, he rids us of anxieties. It's a package deal. They do go together. And that phrase, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That little phrase, casting anxieties, has really two important components to it in the original language. I thought it was quite kind of interesting. Number one is that it is not a separate command. You see, casting anxieties was conditional on the first command, which is be humbled. So you can only cast your anxieties once you've been humbled. And the second would be that it has the idea of casting all your worries on him. Not just worries as they come along, but taking a point in time where you cast everything that you would ever worry of. It's it's a dropping of all your worries, past and present. That anything that will one day concern us, no matter how far in the future, you put on Christ's shoulders. It's making a preemptive decision that you won't worry anymore. It's a vaccination against the pandemic of worry. And you do it in advance. Now, if you like me, when I first saw that, I thought that, that seems a little more difficult than just casting my worries on Christ as they come. But aren't we already doing this in regard to our forgiveness of sin? Think about it. You make a decision to trust Christ's death on the cross. And all that happened in the past. And that is going to pay for all of your sin. Past, present, and future sin in your life has all been taken away 2,000 years ago on the cross. So that when I repent and I turn from sin... Now, what I'm really doing is acknowledging what has already been forgiven of me. I've already given all my sin, past, present, and future to Christ. I'm just acknowledging it. Rather than just wishful hoping that somehow he'll find the mercy to do it again, Lord. No, I'm acknowledging what's already true of my life. And so I've got a little illustration here. Kids, pastor, you know we got to have a little illustration. Everybody has a worry bucket. We all have things that we're worried about, right? And typically we just kind of carry this around with us. And we add and we remove worries as they come and as they go. But really what happens is they get quite heavy. If you have the Bible app and you're reading the verse of the day, on Tuesday this week, it was kind of fun, uh, Proverbs 12, 25, it said, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So let me ask you, wouldn't this be better if we did it the way that God commands us to do in the Scripture here? To do a one-time casting of our anxiety. So you fill your bucket with of worry. So you've got finances. You put that down. You've got your kids down here. You're going to put that down there. You've got acceptance. You've got 
your job, you've got other things you worry about like your health, you've got uh, your marriage, you can worry about that, or, or your accomplishments, you can worry about that, or your future. And you put it all in there. So what if you just put all of these in there, and it's quite heavy, right? Because these would be big bricks that you're putting in there. But then you just take it, and you put that lid on it. And then you just put it to the side. And you don't have to carry it around anymore because it's weighing you down. And so when anxiety, the, the, the temptation of anxiety comes to you, you could just say, well, I, I, I don't have to worry or be anxious right now. I've, I've already given this to God. And so you're acknowledging what's already true. You've already given your anxieties to him. It's not yours to carry anymore. The Bible says he, because he cares for me. It's his worry now. It's a done deal. So with lasting effects that we need only recognize, not just hope for. So you don't have to pridefully try to do things your own way and carry your own bucket, adding and removing worries as they come. You just one time give it to the Lord and you're done. Doesn't God's way then sound much more preferable? <laughs> Who knew, right? But think about this, that, that, and I hope you can see it, that worry is actually pride. Anxiety is being convinced that you've got to solve your problems on your own strength. And so you're trusting in yourself as a God to carry that weight instead of entrusting it to the Father. There's a great quote I saw in a book uh, this week. It said, anxiety is a self-contradiction to true humility. Unbelief is, in a sense, an exalting of self against God in that one is depending upon self and failing to trust God. Why worry, therefore, if we are his concern? He is more concerned about our welfare than we could possibly be. Furthermore, since the humbling process has been allowed to come to us in the permissive will of God, and he is using it to accomplish his purpose in our lives, he has it under his control and in his care. And in it, all he is concerned about us is us. Therefore, again, why worry? Well, the second way here to build spiritual fortitude is to be sober-minded and watchful. It's right there in the text. So Peter tries to make it crystal clear here that his main theme is that suffering precedes glory. And you can see it all throughout 1 Peter. So here's some of the other verses, chapter 1, 6 and 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, so that your faith may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. One eleven, the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that will follow. 3.14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. 4.13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So you see that suffering and glory to go together. And this, this idea in the scripture of trial and training and test and proof, these are all going together, the synonymous, to prove your faith. And so that anything worth having, you know this, it takes grit. We must overcome difficulty before the reward. But our culture, we, they wants a reward, uh, we wants the reward without the requisite work before it. But we know that life doesn't work that way. So you have to go to boot camp before you become a Marine. You have to go to police academy before you become an officer. University before graduation. Labor before the birth of a child. Grinding out before winning the game. Studying before passing the test. Working out before losing weight. Saving and generosity before you have solid financials. Communication and cooperation before you have a good marriage. I mean, folks, is there anything in life, this life that's worth having that you didn't have to suffer and press to get it? And if you didn't suffer and press, and if you weren't stretched and tested, wouldn't you feel entitled to it? No, no, no. Chapter 4, verse 12, 1 Peter, he says it. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so he says here in 
Chapter five, be sober-minded and watchful. And that assumes that you know that life as an exile is not gonna be easy. It's not supposed to be. It's as if we're passing this test of faith, trusting in his strength and not our own. And so again, as we suffer, this idea of testing is an idea of proving. This worked out and it made sense to me years ago as I was in my life, you know, in my life, I was working on the sprinklers at my house and I had this mess of wires and underground PVC that I inherited from the previous owner and it was all over the place and I just didn't know what was coming or going and, and where the leaks were, where the bad wires were, those kinds of things and I spent a couple hours working on it. I was getting so frustrated because I'm just not good at that stuff. And you know that feeling, you know, when you feel like you should be able to do something, but you can't. And all the insecurity and inadequacy uh, comes up in your life and you feel like the pain you're going through is a punishment from God. And in that situation, my typical go-to response is to gripe at God and complain and just kind of whine about it. But this time, I just asked God, I said, God, would you father me at this moment? Like, I need you to be my father here. I want to see this as part of my training, like my faith boot camp. And I just prayed that and I, I sat there and I just... Started thinking through the process again and what I was looking at. And five minutes later, I can't, I can't even explain it. After praying that, God just showed me like a father would. And it came to me. And I had it figured out. What had confused me in a moment, it just made sense to me. And I just shook my head. I had that rush of joy because you know that your heavenly father has fathered you in that moment. And I was thankful for the trial as a way to prove my faith and to pass the test. And it just gave me reason to praise him rather than to, than to complain. And my, it turned my anger at my failure into dependence on his presence. And it was a joy. And I wouldn't have had that had I not had that struggle. So Dr. George Morrison, he says, God does not make his children carefree in order that he make them care less. So you see, you got the enemy now. And Peter's talking about this. The enemy of the devil masquerades as a roaring lion. But folks, he's not the Jesus, the lion of Judah. He's a pretend Aslan. And so just as the snake deceived Adam and Eve to question God's goodness in the garden, the devil now prowls around as an intimidator, as this scare tactic to make you afraid of your suffering and your trials, to make you anxious that you're all alone, to make you think that God is not there for you, to make you think that your test and your suffering is a punishment, not as a way for God to prove his care for you. And the roar of a lion many times in those times would, of course, scatter a flock of sheep in panic. And I looked up this week that lions roar for a few reasons— uh, to scare off intruders, to warn the pride of potential dangers, and or as a show of power. And I thought it was really interesting here that Peter is using the word devour. It's kind of that same word swallowed. And there's a couple other places where that word is used in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's talking about the resurrection where death is swallowed up, devoured in victory. Or 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, so that what is mortal, our mortal bodies may be swallowed up by life. You see, it sounds in the New Testament like Jesus is the one doing the devouring here. And maybe the, de the devil is just trying to scare off the intruder of the truth of God coming and invading. Maybe the devil is trying to warn a potential danger of Christ the Savior crushing his head. Or maybe it's just a show of power on his part as a last gasp of a defeated foe. <laughs> you see, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, threatening your comfortability and your suffering-free life. But if you weren't humbled by God, 
And if you weren't able to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you, and if you weren't sober-minded and watchful, if you weren't ready to resist him, if you weren't standing firm in the faith, if you didn't know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering, if you thought that you were isolated in your suffering and you didn't believe that Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you, if you didn't believe that he alone has all dominion forever and ever, you know, you might just ditch this whole thing. Now, the enemy is a formidable but he's, and he's not to be taken lightly, of course. But in 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We know what he's up to. And we need to fight in faith to not let suffering strip us of our dependence on Christ and make us anxious. Well, the third point here then is resist him, firm in your faith. You know, this summer, during all the riots and cities burning and election and lockdowns and all that kind of stuff, I was kind of fighting my own anxiety and worry and losing heart myself. And I kept telling myself, I just trying to remind myself, you know, my country is in chaos, but my kingdom is secure. My country's in chaos, but my kingdom is secure. And I read a book called Fortitude. There's a congressman named Dan Crenshaw. He's a Navy SEAL. He lost his eye in the Middle East. He's a Harvard grad. And he's a young guy too. He just, he's great. He's my spirit animal. But he got me all fired up. And I just, he just wanted me to make this time of lockdown and COVID better, to be refined in the fire. Well, one day... I had to go on a walk just to get my mind right on things. And uh, I was, I've been listening to a podcast on Exodus where the guy was in the section of Exodus where he's talking about the plagues. If you remember the story, uh, Moses and the Israelites are slaves in Egypt and they want, uh, God wants them to be free to go out and to worship him. And the, the plagues is this picture of Yahweh God, our God, destroying all the gods of Egypt. And you'll see, the guy outlined how all the plagues of Egypt corresponded to an Egyptian idol and how Yahweh was superior so you have the water god of the Nile. So God turns the Nile to blood. The fertility god is a head of a frog with the body of a woman. And so God sends all the frogs. And the creation god is a, it has the head of a fly. So God sends flies. And, and boils meant that the Egyptian priests couldn't shave. And, but they had to shave to go in and perform their rituals. So they're false, they couldn't do their false worship. Ra was the sun god. So God brings darkness to show Ra's impotence. Pharaoh himself is the son of Ra, so they believe. And so God kills the firstborn to refute that claim that he, that he himself is God. And so all of these plagues in Egypt were a show of the power of Yahweh over these silly Egyptian gods. And there was a lot of suffering. But it, what it showed was like a visible refutation of these idols and these false gods. And I just was on this walk and it, I was thinking, wow, Lord. Are you just here now in America for us in our lives busting up our idols to show your superiority? I mean, think about it, guys. The, the, all of the idols of American society, you know, security, health, freedom, jobs, sports, entertainment, travel, education, money, friendships, full shelves at the store, freedom to do what we want, when we want, even the ability to have enough toilet paper in your life. You know, all of these things that we take for granted, that we put all of our security in. Now, they're not bad things, but as we've said, idols are good things that we make into God things. And I think, how many people have put too much time and trust in all of those things? And is God maybe now just stripping them away? You see, I so that we can see more clearly what's important. 
I see idols kind of like the old Netflix DVD queue, you know, back when Netflix would send you DVDs in the mail and you get one at a time. And, and you can remember that where, you know, you had all your DVDs on, online in order that you would receive them. And so if you, you know, send one back, they'll send you the next one in the queue. And if you added new movies online, many times it would make it number one. It would push it, all the other ones down, and it would make that new movie that you put on there number one. And so, you know, I may be looking forward to looking at Gladiator again. I got to watch Gladiator again. I make that my number one. But then I, I get a, I want to laugh a little bit. So, oh, I got to see Dumb and Dumber again, right? I mean, how, you can't get enough Dumb and Dumber. And so I add it, but now that goes to number one, and Gladiator goes to number two. And then Christy says, well, you know, I want to watch Anne of Green Gables or something. And, and you know, now Gladiator's number three. And uh, it's, you know, the only way to prioritize Maximus and Commodus is to remove some or move everybody else down. I mean, serious first world problems, right? Well, you know how our lives work. We want to prioritize prayer and the word and church and generosity and serving and life groups. But then we just add all this other stuff and it kind of automatically loads up at that number one spot. Kids' practices, online learning, a new show to binge watch, a trip to take, necessities to buy, commitments to family or obligations and things like that. And, and you know, we've just got to pro- proactively move those left, lesser things down the queue or remove some altogether so that time with God, his people, giving and serving can stay in that number one slot. We've got to be careful to allow good things not to become God things and move up the queue unnecessarily. You see, these are things that we have chosen to worship over Christ. And they, could God be getting our attention by removing all of these idols that we've placed above him in the queue? And if so, are we learning the lesson? Are we just grumbling about what 2020 and all the lockdowns have brought? And so Peter tells us here, resist, resist the devil. And, and that means telling, uh, resist that devil when he comes to you telling you that you need those things, that you can't live without those things. He says, stand firm in your faith against the roar of the, of the, the enemy saying that God doesn't care for you. So Peter is writing to people, and you know this, that were in much more serious threat of beatings and prison and death. In fact, I'd say that their suffering is far worse than anything 2020 has brought. And so Peter says, we stand firm because we know that the same kind of suffering is being experienced by our brothers throughout the world. But let me ask you, is it really the same? (laughs) You know that there's more Christians persecuted for their faith than at any other time in history. 11 Christians every day die. Many more imprisoned and beaten. And right now, 260 million Christians around the world live in areas of high persecution. That's one in eight Christians worldwide. Now, I I know and I've heard through this COVID stuff that a lot of you think that because everything's going bad in America, that Jesus is coming back. Maybe so. I I sure hope he comes back. Lord, let it come today. Why don't you come today? Let it be today, Lord. But how do you think that sounds to brothers and sisters around the world that Jesus is coming now that America is dealing with the consequences of our self-imposed decisions? How do you think it sounds in North Korea where you could be killed on the spot or sent to a labor camp if you're found out as a believer. Or Afghanistan, where it's illegal to leave Islam. Or Somalia, where if you're discovered, your family and your clan are threatened. And ex-Muslims have a, are high-value targets. Or Libya, where there's no freedom of speech or religion. Or Eritrea, where it's, which is near Ethiopia, where they jail Christians in shipping containers in scorching heat. 
or China where it's forbidden for anyone under 18 to go to church. There's a testimony from a 15-year-old girl named Tara from Libya. She's confined to a room for her faith in Jesus after Jesus healed her. And here's a quote. She says, my parents told me, you're a shame to our family. Our community detests us because you go to church. So either leave Jesus or forget the relationship you have with us. You see, folks, I, I, I dislike the lockdowns as much as anybody else. I'm dying to go out and eat without a mask. I'm dying to have kids church and VBS and camp and see kids back at school. But come on now. We don't have the same kind of suffering as our brothers and sisters around the world. And if your demeanor and countenance is soured by these lockdown inconveniences, listen, please don't call it persecution. I think it's kind of insulting to our brothers and sisters who are experiencing real persecution. And so for us, you know, who knows what the American church is going to be like coming out of COVID. I promise you, your pastors, we've been talking about it a lot, constantly having this conversation. But I really believe that God is doing something new. I really believe he's breaking things apart to remove idols. You know, our secular culture all the time keeps using words like deconstruct and tear down the system. And I'm thinking, yeah, but who's running the system? You are, (laughs) the secularist. But what do you want to do? Burn it all down so you can rule over the ashes? That's been tried before, all through history. And it usually results in millions of people dead at the hands of revolutionaries. But no, they, they want to tear down the system and all the promises of heaven on earth with no need for a savior. It's ridiculous, I think. It's childish, it's dangerous. You see, I think the secular world is making these promises through a roaring lion too. Promises of a kingdom without a king, right? They, they, they want a, the power of God without the presence of God. And to me, it's the height of pride to want to tear it all down and build it their way like a new Babel. But God says in these verses, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So we must... Be humbled and under his mighty hand. But what if it were the king of kings and God himself who's doing all the deconstructing? What if the creator is the one tearing down the world system? If you remember in 1 Peter 4, 17, it says, for, the, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. You see, I think cultural renewal must happen within us first. And then it will spill out into culture. And so what if God is ripping away idols from the people of God first, refining his church? Sure, we as exiles, we're going to look different than the city and the world and the kingdom that that is in the world here. But why would we want to look like them? Is it working for them? No. And so Mark Sayers, that author I was talking about before, he says that, that renewal must come, but you must have upheaval first. It's like Tilling the soil before you lay sod or seed, rather than just laying it on hard ground. In my backyard, my dog would go out and pee all over the grass, and she killed a whole patch of grass. And so I kind of yanked up that grass, and I never really rototilled it. I just slapped another piece of sod right on top of it. I knew I better. I was just in a hurry. And uh, I didn't really turn up the soil. I didn't add any new healthy soil in, and it just died almost immediately. And I've had to replace it since. It's kind of like Jesus' parable, the seed on the path, where the seed just lies there on the hard ground. But you see, I believe that in order for the gospel seeds of renewal to come, God needs to till the soil in our hearts, remove the weeds of idols, and add some nutrient-rich soil of prayer and repentance in us, watering it through the scripture, allowing sunlight of God's Holy Spirit. And without that kind of upheaval, and God full-on rototilling our hearts, 
then I think we're just trying to lay renewal on the hard soil of what's always, what we've always done. I have a quote in my office that says, if I want to reach the people of Tracy, I must rid myself of the idols of Tracy. And so what is it that we're idolizing here in Tracy? What is it that keeps us from putting God number one in the queue? And let's get rid of those things. And so how about we get some spiritual fortitude? And so instead of grumbling, ask God what idol he's exposing in us. Ask him to humble us so that we can cast our anxieties on him. Ask him to strip idols away that we can pass the test and stand firm and resist the devil. And that leads us to the last promise. He has called us to, called you to his eternal glory in Christ. See, in verse 10, it says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Just like the angels did after Jesus passed his test in the wilderness. And so, if you look through the Bible, you'll see that there are periods of uh, God's people forgetting God and then remembering God. It's like waves of an ocean that come and go. There's times of renewal and times of rejection. It ebbs and flows like the waves of the ocean. And so look throughout other times of history and you'll see the same thing. You've got reformations and revivals and the first and great second, uh, great awakenings. You've got, and most recently, you know, there was kind of this wave of church attendance in the 50s and early 60s following World War II. And since then, we've been watching the waves recede back since then. This riptide pulling us into a secularism, a time of forgetting God again. And so our prayer, my prayer, is for God to bring renewal, for the wave of the Spirit to come and crash in again. But that comes first. The requisite of that is a time of difficulty. Time of difficulty always comes before renewal. There's suffering before glory. And all through history, when there's moments of renewal, and when they come, it's always after people have lost things. It's always when a generation reaches the point where they have to turn to God again because it's been too long that they've been forgetting him and it's time to remember him again. And so the question for us to ask is, will God come again? Will we remember him? Are we looking for him to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us again? You see, our country's in turmoil, but our kingdom is secure. Verse 11 says, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. You know, the Native Americans and the Aborigines in, in Australia would periodically uh, purposely start brush fires to burn all the brush uh, away that was not needed and allow new shoots to grow up. Jesus spoke of this kind of thing when he's talking about pruning in a vineyard, cutting away dying branches, allowing for new growth. And I'll tell you, for me, it looks like cultural Christianity. You know that whole, I'm just going to go to church, I'm going to say that I'm a Christian so that it kind of adds to my social standing. I'm a, I'm a Christian in name only. Seems like that's burning up in our culture. I say, let's give it a nice funeral and let's move on. Nominal Christianity is dead brush. And I say, good riddance. You see, maybe God is making space for some new growth. For those who truly want to follow Christ, the remnant, those who are willing to suffer, those who will be humble themselves under God's mighty hand, those willing to be sober-minded and alert, resisting the devil, standing firm in the faith, you see, I think that we're going to see a renewal of the church, that the tide is going to come back in and that wave is going to crash anew and it's going to look different than it did in the 50s or even in the 80s without that cultural Christianity. And those who survived the test, whose faith is proven through the fire of testing, who have had Christ himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish their faith, 
are going to get what Peter promised in chapter 1, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. So in the meantime, we'll live like exiles. We're just passing through this world. Like we said last week, we'll build homes, we'll plant gardens, we'll marry, we'll pray for the good of the city. Our hope is not in this polis, this city, but our citizenship is in heaven. And so if we can do that, let's just call it 2020 vision. (laughs) Where in this year, 2020, God is forcing us to see him more clearly. To clarify and help us with more focus on what's important and what's not. And I'll tell you what's important. And I'll finish with this. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Lord, let it be today. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And thank you, Lord, for all of your promises in Scripture. God, I pray that you would give us the fortitude that we need to stand up under suffering and to be able to praise you in the midst of it, knowing that it's proving our faith. God, help us to trust you that way. Help us to be different from the people around us and to show them what it means to live a life trusting you. And God, I pray that if there's anybody that is hearing this maybe for the first time or has never really made that decision, or maybe they've they've realized, you know what, I've only been a nominal Christian and I've never truly given my faith and my trust in Christ's forgiveness of sin. Lord, I pray that they do that today and they would let us know. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.